0: All right, Psalm number 65. Appreciate everyone contributing to the worship service this morning. In all ways, thank you for the musicians and for Ben. Now, what happened to Tom? Where's Tom's musical ability? He sings. Okay, well, I'll have to remember that. Oh, he can't. Oh, okay, I'll have to maybe get Tom to sing a special with me some morning. Huh? Kind of fun, wasn't it? Anyway, don't tell him I said that, all right? Psalm number 65. What a wonderful passage of Scripture. You know, <clears throat> ever since I kind of have come back to some of my roots, you know, living in a rural community, um, interesting when we moved here we came from the city but you know i have grown up in a very rural farming community in southern illinois and um one of the benefits of living in an agrarian culture or area is that it makes a lot of the connections with the bible very easy because the bible was written to a people originally who were farmers. And uh, perhaps no other psalm that I've encountered thus far in the whole book of Psalms describes some of the beauties of living in a farming community or in a farming culture than Psalm 65. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. I have a little bit of an introduction I'd like to read to you. This is an exceptional poem about nature but we find this is really a poem about the God of nature and moreover a poem about the nature of our God. We find woven into this great song several truths concerning the grace of God to humanity, God's mighty works, and that God himself is the source of all that which is good and all that which creation and nature affords. The great C.S. Lewis remarks concerning the deep appreciation the Hebrew people had for nature and creation. He notes that the Jews did not have nearly as many large metropolitan areas like our modern civilizations are accustomed to. Lewis said the people of ancient Israel did not think of the country as we do like a place to go have a weekend getaway far from the busyness of life in the cities. Regarding the 65th Psalm, C.S. Lewis writes, quote, The psalmists, who are writing neither lyrics nor romances naturally give us little landscape. What they do give us far more sensuously and delightedly than anything I have seen in Greek is the very feel of weather." Weather seen with a real countryman's eyes, enjoyed almost as a vegetable might be supposed to enjoy it, End quote. Upon closer inspection, we find the 65th Psalm is also a harvest hymn to be sung when the crops were gathered in. In our modern churches, we also have several harvest hymns. Come, ye thankful people, come. Raise the song of harvest home. All is safely gathered in, ere the winter storms begin. God our maker doth provide for our wants to be supplied. Come to God's own temple, come. Raise the song of harvest home. All the world is God's own field, fruit unto his praise to yield. Wheat and tares together sown, unto joy our sorrow grown. First the blade and then the ear, then the full corn shall appear. Lord of harvest, grant that we wholesome grain and pure may be. But as good as our harvest hymns may be, they pale in comparison to the grander freshness, and joy that this ancient composition possesses. The great Bible teacher Derek Kidner said about Psalm 65, quote, The climax of this psalm, a stanza as fresh and irrepressible as the fertility it describes, puts every harvest hymn to shame as plotting and contrived, Here we almost feel the splash of showers and the sense, the springing growth about us. Yet the whole song has this directness, whether it is speaking of God in his temple courts in verses one through four or in his vast domain in verses five through eight or among the hills and valleys, which has very, which his very passing wakens to life, end quote. The great Bible commentator H.C. Leopold said, quote, We venture the claim that this is the most eloquent and beautiful description of the blessings that God bestows on field and meadow to be found anywhere in such brief compass. End quote. Several things are worth noting about the 65th Psalm. This psalm was probably composed for the Jews' annual harvest festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a very glad time for the Hebrew people as the crops from that season's harvest were brought in and the people would celebrate God's bountiful goodness to them. They would offer the first fruits of their harvests to God. But I want you to notice what is perhaps the most striking and interesting feature of Psalm 65. Notice verse number three. We did not read it together, so I'll I'll invite you to follow along in your Bibles. Psalm 65 and verse number three. It says, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Some other translations use the word purge. The proper word here is the word atone. And this is the first of three mentions throughout all the book of Psalms of this very important Bible word, atone, A-T-O-N-E. This speaks of the atonement. This is significant because the day of atonement immediately preceded the Feast of Tabernacles in the Jewish calendar year. This suggests... That the many blessings of nature which God gives to His people are predicated upon the atoning work of God and Jesus Christ. May we come to this 65th psalm to commune with the God of grace, the God of might, and the God of plenty. Our sermon points this morning are simply taken from the title of the message God of grace in verses one through four. Roman numeral number one, God of grace, verses one through four. Roman numeral number two, God of might, M-I-G-H-T, verses five through eight. And last but not least, God of plenty, verses nine through 13. That is God of grace, verses one through four, God of might, verses 5 through 8, and God of Plenty verses 9 through 13. So far so good? You ready? All right, let's get going. Now, I want you to notice something. In these first four verses, there is a lot happening. So I'm going to do my best to sort of do this, grab it all together, put it together, Form it into a way that you can understand what's actually happening in these first four verses, because uh, there is a tremendous amount of truth packed into verses one through four, which dialogue the God of mercy or the God of grace. Notice with me, if you would, in verse number two, he said, oh, you who hear prayer talking about God. But then notice in verse two to you shall all flesh come to you shall all flesh come. And this is interesting. Because in the day that David, if you take a literal Davidic author, if you believed in a historical David like I do, then David wrote this composition some 1,000 years before Jesus Christ would be born and for david to write to god shall one day all flesh come this was a very how shall we say provocative statement for jewish people because the jews lived in a time and a day and especially in the time and era that david would have written the 65th psalm the jews were not how do i say all peoples of the earth were not known for coming to God for their prayers to be answered. Matter of fact, David and the Jewish people at the time that this psalm would have been written excuse me were in conflict. They were in a war. They were having various military confrontations with the Amorites and the Philistines and the Moabites and Uh, Later on, it would be the Jews and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Greeks and the Romans. And this psalm speaks of a time when all flesh shall come to God to be blessed and to get their prayers answered. God welcomes all ethnicities, all skin colors, all tribal backgrounds all languages it doesn't matter who you are what color your skin or what family you come from or what nation or country God is inviting all people to come to him pray to worship and praise to glorify him for who he is now this is important because in verse 2 you have this concept Of all flesh coming to God but then I also want you to notice with me the fourth verse of Psalm 65 he said blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house the holiness of your temple it's not just that God is calling upon all peoples of all nations to praise him. But then all peoples of all nations are to receive. What's that first word of the fourth verse in your Bibles? Blessing. God desires God longed even way back 3,000 years ago when the vast majority of planet earth were running around worshiping idols and doing all sorts of dark and terrible things. Way back then, God longed, God willed, God desired for all flesh to come to him and be blessed. And what does this mean? This speaks to us of the promise and the covenant which God made to the man Abraham. Do you remember when God comes to Abraham in the plains of Shinar and he said, Abraham, get you away from your country and away from your kindred and follow me into a land which you know not. And I will make of you a great nation and Abraham, I will bless them that bless you. I will curse them that curse you and Abraham In you, Abraham, shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And here you have it. God still has this great promise, this great covenant, this great contract that he has made with Abraham. God still has this in his heart and mind. It was roughly 1,000 years from Abraham to David. And God has not forgotten, God has not reneged, God has not changed his mind that in Abraham, that in Israel as a nation, God would one day bless all nations, all peoples. And this blessing of Abraham, this blessing of which David wrote, this speaks to us of Christ, Christ coming. To bless all nations with the good blessing and the gift of eternal salvation in and through him. I want you to notice this third verse again. He said, you atone for our transgressions. In the second part of the third verse. Sir, here you have these great themes Aren't you so glad this morning you have the theme of all flesh coming to God? You have the theme of atonement. You have the theme of blessing. And all of these things speak to us of the promises and the covenants which God has made that God will keep no matter what happens. God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his word. And God is going to send Messiah one day to die on the cross and to purchase eternal redemption and salvation in and through his blood atonement. I bet you didn't know that that was in the first four verses of Psalm 65, did you? But you know now, and this is what this great psalm is about. Yes, it's a psalm of harvest blessings. Yes, it's a psalm of the God of nature and the nature of God and the beauty and the splendor and the grandeur and the glory of the nature in which God has placed us in creation its own self. But this is primarily a psalm about the blessing of God being bestowed upon the nations. This atonement is always by blood. And this speaks to us of God's graciousness to sinners. In John chapter 4, you have Christ meeting the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And he says something to her of the effect, he said, it's not for you to partake of the promises of Israel. But then he says something very stunning. He says, the day is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that worshiping, that blessing is open to all nations, even Samaritans like the woman at the well. This atonement speaks of God requiring the life, the lifeblood of something innocent in order to atone an innocent sacrifice that must atone for the sins of the guilty Perhaps no greater verse speaks of the separation that we have experienced as fallen creatures from our maker and our master and our creator than, the 50, than Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. The Bible said, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. What has caused God to hide his face from us? It is our sins. Sin has caused God to hide his face from each and every one of us. But what the atonement does, the word literally means covering. When I think of atonement... I like to think of this sort of helpful phrase I was taught some years ago, at one meant. So atonement, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T, at one mint. What does the atonement do? It makes two parties that were once at odds with each other and hostile enmity, two parties who were once enemies of one another. The atonement brings at It brings fallen sinners and a holy God back together. But I want you to notice something very striking as well about the mention of the atonement in Psalm 65. In Psalm 65 in verse 3, I want to ask you a question this morning. Who is the one... Who makes atonement? Look at what the Bible says. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Isn't that interesting? God Himself atones for our transgressions. It's not the priest, it's not the animal. And it really isn't even the blood, although the blood is vastly important. It is God himself that provides an atonement for a fallen race of human beings. Would you like to see a very powerful passage on God providing for himself a sacrifice? Let's look at the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis. Many of you may be familiar with this great passage of scripture. Here's a little background Abraham gets a word from God. Abraham has been given Isaac, the child of promise, the child of the covenant. You remember Abraham and his wife were over 90 years old when they had this little baby? You thought you had a lot of trouble. All right, can you imagine raising a child 90 years old? God is faithful, God is able. All right, you would need the strength of God, some of us say. All right, but nevertheless, God gives them a child of His promise. This is a blessing that God has given them, but then God. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand of the fire and of the knife, and so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the Lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Then he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. Caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now did you catch what happened in this great piece of scripture? other than the fact that God told Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering, which is very controversial. We don't have time to go into all that that means, but I want you to notice the words. In this great passage, he says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. But what's the problem with this passage? Well, later on, when Abraham goes to actually make the offering in verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. Now the last time I checked, a lamb and a ram are two completely different creatures. Abraham specifically says that God will provide for himself a lamb. But on that day, Abraham offers a ram. Now what does this mean? They were still waiting for the lamb that God was going to offer one day And this geographical location, Mount Moriah, is going to become the same exact geographical topographical location as Mount Golgotha or Calvary. Where one day God would in fact provide for himself a lamb, a spotless, perfect, flawless, faultless lamb. It wasn't a lamb that Abraham seen caught by the horns of his head in the thicket. Did you know that the Bible went out of its way to describe and make sure that you understand that this beast, that this animal that was offered had horns? Lambs don't have horns, male or female. I guess some of the male ones do, but it does say a ram. And the reason why it says a ram is because that ram was not going to fully and finally make an offering for the sins of a sin-cursed world, but that one day Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would come and on the same mountain that Isaac offers his son, his only son, Christ Jesus the Lord would offer himself as an eternal sacrifice to take away the sins of the world Now, this is important because it is God himself who makes atonement for sins. I want you to notice something with me as well. In verse number four of Psalm 65, notice immediately after the statement that David makes about God atoning for our transgressions, Immediately now you have, in verse 4, now you have blessing. And if I know anything about this blessed, even though it looks like it's a past tense singular verb, in our modern English language, it's actually plural. And it's blessednesses. It means many. And from verse 4 all the way to the end of this great psalm, because of the atonement for our transgressions, which God himself provides. He said, you atone for our transgressions. And then in verse number 4, he said, blessed is the one who you choose and bring near. It's not just that God blesses us with the atonement but it's that God chooses us and this speaks of God choosing the nation of Israel to be his peculiar and familiar people the people that God would use to give the law And to be the light and the shining light and the beacon of hope to a lost and dying world. The people of Israel were chosen to be the apple of God's eye. To be the people of the covenant of God. And this is where the promises that God made to Moses come in. This is where the covenant that God made to Moses. He said, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will bless you. This not only speaks to us of the promise that God made to Abraham, but it speaks to us also of the promise that God made to Moses. And the promise that God made to Moses was a promise that focused more on the people of God. These people were his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples of the earth, God chose Israel not because they were many and mighty in number, but God chose Israel because he loved them. I have in this psalm several of the great blessings which are recorded because of the atonement. Remember, they're plural. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. This is the great blessing of restored fellowship with God. None of us are born in fellowship with God. We must be born again to be in fellowship with God. And it's through the blood of the atonement, through the blessing of Abraham and the blessing of Moses and the promises that God has made. That human beings are brought back into a right relationship with their God. But it's not just the blessing of restored fellowship in verse 4. It's the blessing of God's goodness being poured out on us. He said in the second part of verse 4, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house. It's not just restored fellowship. God now looks upon His chosen people with goodness, with favor, as His treasured possession, as His peculiar people. A people to whom He has chosen because of His great steadfast love. Notice also in verse 5, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. What is another great blessing of the atonement? It is awesome answers to prayer. Think about what he said in verse 5. Do you expect not just answer to prayer, but do you expect awesome answer to prayer? Now, did I say that his answers to our prayers are awesome? Or is that what God says in his word? Look at what he said. By awesome deeds you answer us. Isn't that wonderful? And God answers us in righteousness. God's answers to our prayers are awesome. And they are righteous. And we cannot have our prayers answered by God. Until we have received the blood of atonement. We have received the promise of Abraham. The promise of Moses. Isn't this wonderful? Somebody says, well, I hope that it's true. You don't have to hope that it's true. If you are trusting in the blood of the atonement that God himself has provided, the lamb that God will one day offer, you don't have to hope that the blessings are yours. You can know that they are. There's nothing to hope for, but there's everything to be thankful for. Somebody says, well, maybe if I close my eyes and cross my fingers, the blessings of God will become real. Now, that's not how it works. God is pouring his blessings out on you. Why? Because there was a lamb that was slain. There was a blood atonement that was made and that blood atonement was eternal. It was full and it was final. Notice also in verse number five, what else do we have? It's almost like opening up a treasure trove and finding all of these tremendous blessings. And you just pick them out one after another. And when you think there's nothing else that could come out of there, there's more blessing. Blessing piled upon blessing upon blessing. Why? Because of God. Because of God's goodness, because of God's grace, because of God's love. What else do we have in verse 5? He said, the hope of all the ends of the earth. We have hope, don't we? We're not like those who have no hope. But we have hope. What's our hope? Our hope is God. Our hope is the final reconciliation and restoration of all things under the headship of Christ Jesus the Lord. There is a day coming when all sorrow will be gone, all tears will be wiped away, the old earth and the old heavens will pass away, and God will recreate them brand new. There will be no sin. There will be no enemies we have a great hope, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of Christ's return. What else has God put in our great treasure trove of blessings this morning? We'll Look at verse 5, the end of verse 5. He said, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, verse 6, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. The waves, the sea, is a picture of the nations of the earth. And in this great picture, God says that he is stilling the tumult, the waves of the people. God brings peace to the nations. God brings peace. the nations why are the nations in tumult because they are not in communion with god but what is god bringing what is god going to do peace does not come through treaties we should have learned that in our generations how many peace treaties have been signed and there is no peace only god brings peace This is yet another blessing in our treasure trove. Verses nine through 13, God meets our needs. How does God do that? Look at verse 10, you water its furrows abundantly. Verse nine, the river of God is full of water. Notice in verse 10, and blessing and blessing its growth. Notice verse 11, your bounty, in verse 11 in the last part, overflow with abundance. What does God bless us with? Abundance. God's blessings are not just singular. God's blessings are many and manifold. They're abundant. They're overflowing on all sides. Do you believe the best in God? That's a good question. Do we believe the best in God? Somebody says, well, that seems like a trite question. I don't think so. I don't think that we believe the best in God. And what Psalms like Psalm 65 remind us is it reminds us of the best that God is. The overflowing, over-superabounding, full, free blessings of God which have been bestowed upon his people because of God's atonement. And just in case you were wondering, verse 12 and verse number 13 record the blessings of joy and the blessings of praise. There are so many blessings of God that have been bestowed upon us in Psalm 65 because of God's atonement, because of God's promises, because of God's covenants. Someone says, well, I just don't feel blessed this way from God. Well, it may not be a feeling. It may be faith. What we need is to reach out with the unseen hand of faith and lay hold on these superabundant, overflowing, full blessings of God by faith. Let's pray. Oh folks, do you know that God is a God of blessing? God is a God of fullness and abundance. God is a God of joy. Listen how the psalmist ends this great 65th psalm. They shout and sing together for joy. The very last verse, the very last word that God gives us in Psalm 65 is the word joy. Why? Because God desires to be our joy. May we joy in God. May we rejoice in him. May we read the 65th Psalm with believing hearts receiving the many blessings that have been bestowed upon us.